0: Will you pray with me. Lord, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. So we ask why does our nation rage? Why do we seek to destroy each other? Why do we incite chaos and try to create false peace? Why do we pursue our selfish ambition of power and comfort? Why do we let hate prevail over what you have called us to be? We have all gone astray. Let your righteous will prevail over us. Let your sacrificial love convict us to a right mind. Let your faithfulness create in us a renewed sense of covenantal relationship. Let your word restore understanding in us. You are all sufficient, Lord, to save us and make us new. May we recognize our depravity and our part that we have played to rebel against you. May we understand that we are in exile, strangers in this foreign land. Yet this doesn't change the truth that you are still Lord and King. We come to you knowing that we are foolish when we act in our own understanding. Help us to seek your wisdom and to submit to your commands. Open our ears. Soften our hearts. Humble us as we behold your glory. Give us resolve to die to self and live for our Lord. We put our hope in you. And there will be a day when the nations will kneel before you. The world will be under your righteous judgment. And your people will glorify you in their obedience and in their Christ-like love. To the only wise God be glory forever, through Christ Jesus, amen.
1: Amen, amen. Thank you, Patrick. You can have a seat. And thank you, Patrick, for doing double duty there as dad and then elder. <laughs> well, if you, are, uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Daniel 1, starting in verse 8 there. We're actually going to read through the entirety of the chapter, but our main text will be Daniel eight, or 1, 8 through 21. How many of you rely on cereal to start your day off right? Anybody in here? Okay, who likes Lucky Charms? Does anybody like Lucky... Yeah, okay, good. Good, okay. The rest of you have bad taste. Just kidding. Did you know that in a small way, you should actually thank the book of Daniel for the popularity of breakfast cereals that you enjoy? It's odd, but it's true. And this is not necessarily something to celebrate, though. Now, before you think I've lost my mind, and this is the strangest intro you've ever heard me preach... That's okay, just keep following with me for a minute, okay? You see, the person that made cereal mainstream was a man named John Harvey Kellogg. Does that make sense, Kellogg's, right? And he did so out of a desire to propagate a vegetarian diet for those desiring to walk in holiness to God. Matt, could you turn my game down? It's ringing in my ears. Thanks, buddy. He did so out of a desire to propagate a vegetarian diet for those desiring to walk in holiness to God. Part of the reasoning tied to this idea comes from what I would suggest is a misinterpretation of the section of Daniel we will cover today. I share this with you because Daniel is one of, if not the most, misused and misrepresented books in the Bible, and we'll see this as we go throughout the book. And one of those errors is directly tied to the use of this passage we have before us today to construct any kind of imperative that demands a certain diet. Let me explain by giving you a little bit of history. In the introduction to Daniel, I spoke of a group called the Millerites, whose leader used the numbers in Daniel as well as some other prophetic books to predict that Christ would return in 1843. When he did not, their leader a Baptist preacher named William Miller, thus the Millerites, recalculated and said that it would be 1844. When that proved false, it was called the Great Disappointment. Now, a family that was deeply enthralled with his errant biblical interpretation was the family of a young girl that would grow up to be known as Ellen White. She was a prolific writer, a self-proclaimed prophetess, and one of the founders of what we know as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. At nine years old, she suffered a head injury and began having seizures, from which she would emerge with supposed visions. As part of these visions, the founders of this group began to declare that a vegetarian diet was required by any truly serious follower of Christ. Part of how she backed this idea biblically was to point back to the text in Daniel 1 that we are looking at today. As an example, in 1938, Ellen White published a writing called Councils on Diet and Foods. And in it, she references Daniel numerous times. Here is one quote. Daniel's clearness of mind and firmness of purpose, his strength of intellect in acquiring knowledge, were due in a great degree to the plainness of his diet in connection with his life of prayer. Notice the emphasis is on the diet as the source of power and not the Lord. Now, years later, as this teaching was building, a young man named John Harvey Kellogg came along and embraced this teaching to such a great degree that he started a sanitarium and built a new enterprise in which cereals, such as cornflakes, could replace the typical American breakfast that was full of meat products. Thus, the cereal industry was born. Now, if you do your research on this man and his ideas, you will find a mix of some things that resulted in some great blessings to health. But you'll also see some horrific ideas that were downright bizarre A misreading of Daniel was, in part, a backing to this push for a vegetarian lifestyle. Now, fast forward to current day, and many people have subscribed to the evangelical version that has been around for a while, but most recently was popularized by Saddleback Church in California. There, the lead pastor, Rick Warren, co-wrote a book about the health benefits of a diet plan supposedly resembling Daniel's diet this is a less legalistic version, but still odd to me that an entire diet plan and book can be created out of one line that says, Daniel and his friends were given vegetables to eat and water to drink. The entire book was made out of that. And if you read it, you'll recognize that the diet plan in that book is not about vegetables, it's about much more. Now, if you're a person who engages in a vegetarian diet, a vegan diet, or have ever used the Daniel plan sporadically to gain health. I celebrate with you that that's the case. I celebrate with you that these diets have been fruitful and helpful for you, and that is awesome. You shouldn't change it. I'm not asking anyone here or online to discard any kind of diet that they've found helpful. What I am saying is, please just call it a helpful diet, and don't attach it to Daniel or any other part of the Bible. Now why do I ask that? Because the Bible, even the Torah, was not primarily given to us as a guidebook on how to eat. We know this because even ceremonial food laws were only for the purpose of separating the Jews from the pagan nations. There was not something innately holy in these dietary laws. Now this is confirmed by the fact that in the New Testament they all get thrown out the window when Peter has a vision in Acts 10. Verses 9 through 16, you guys remember that story. Peter's up there having a vision on the roof, and a sheet comes down from heaven full of animals that would normally be unclean to eat for the Jews. God's voice says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat, and Peter refuses and proclaims his purity in keeping dietary laws. But God answers him and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This is a metaphor that the Gentiles were now purified by Christ's sacrifice and could be included in the people of God. But in so doing, the dietary laws get booted out. But unfortunately, because we're human, division continued in the church based upon dietary laws, and so then Paul comes along and he has to address it. Now, I could give you a number of the cases where he has to do this in multiple epistles, but here is one of his comments. It's pretty straightforward. 1 Corinthians 8.8 says, Food will not commend us to God. Pretty straightforward, right? We are no worse if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So if you love vegetables and you're a vegetarian or a vegan, praise God, amen? If you love a nice, big, juicy hamburger with the blood still pouring out of it, amen, right? Amen. Amen. Okay. So we got people still in here, all right? Now some of you, because you're Bible scholars are like, now wait a minute, let's go further in Acts when it says don't give anything that still has the blood, we're not going to get into that. But the reality is, is food does not commend us to God, right? So why, as New Testament believers, are we even coming near something that plays around with the idea that people who pursue, pursue a certain diet will somehow attain more wisdom and possibly holiness than others? What these are is an example of what happens when we practice eisegesis on the Bible and try to force truths on it that are not the purpose of the original text. In so doing, we end up twisting the Bible to suit our own ends, missing the original intention of the original author, and possibly attaching the Lord's name in vain to something he never intended. So this morning, I pressed this issue with you as my introduction because I want to remove any presuppositions we bring to this passage so we can re-engage it with a blank slate to see what the historical, grammatical, and biblical context provides us. And if we do that, I believe what we will see is a primary theme, which I have entitled, Trusting God for Wisdom Amidst a Toxic Culture. Trusting God for Wisdom Amidst a Toxic Culture. I don't know if I'm getting old, guys, or my hearing's going out. Can everybody hear me okay? I feel like I'm not coming through at all. Yeah? Yeah? Okay? All right, good. Trusting God for wisdom amidst a toxic culture. My wife's been telling me for years i got to get my hearing checked, so I should probably listen to her. I believe that this truth, trusting God for wisdom amidst a toxic culture, will be far more profitable to us than using this passage as a suggestion or a command of dietary restriction. So let's begin by reviewing quickly the first seven verses of Daniel chapter one to give us context. I know we've gone through it before, but let's remind ourselves. Daniel chapter one, verses one through seven. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, or Shinar, to the house of his God, They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. What we see here in this section is the king's determination to assimilate the exiles, In summary, that's what this section is, the king's determination to assimilate the exiles. Now, last week, we went through this in depth. You can go back and listen to it or watch it online. But for the sake of the context of our verses today, 8 through 21, I want to refresh our memories in terms of what exile meant for these four Jewish teenage boys. The background to their exile was bleak. It was a nightmare of immense proportions. Their homeland was captured and their leadership was turned into puppets of Babylon. The temple, the very place where heaven and earth met, was stripped of its implements and carried off to Babylon to be used in the temple of a false god, a false god that was an enemy of Yahweh. They were transported, possibly in chains, to the land of Shinar, which for any Jew was known to be the place of high treason by humanity against God at the Tower of Babel outwardly their identities were purged as they were given food from the king's table that had most likely been offered to idolatrous gods. The goal here was to make them plump in similarity to the other Mesopotamian wise men and sorcerers. We'll talk more about that in a minute. They were given Babylonian clothing, and there is also a possibility that they may have been castrated as eunuchs. This was part of what was prophesied in Isaiah 39, 6-7. We don't see this explicitly stated in Daniel, but in Isaiah 39, 6-7, the second half of that says, some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So there's an inference by some commentators uh, that Daniel and his three friends were turned into eunuchs. Now, inwardly, they were sent to be reeducated for three years with the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the wise men. They most likely focused on the civil law of Babylon and the mythological religious literature that was meant specifically as an apologetic against their Hebrew understanding and God of creation in the spiritual realms. This was no simple re-education. This was intended to remove any and every part of Yahweh from their minds. On top of that, They would be educated in divination, like the ability to interpret sheep livers and practice astrology to determine the feelings and opinions of the gods. Their very names were changed from names that innately spoke of worship to Yahweh to names that worshiped other gods. For example, Azariah, which means Yahweh is my helper, was changed to Abednego, which most likely means the servant of the god, Nego. In all these ways, King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to assimilate the conquered Hebrews and turn them into Babylonians. They may not have had the DNA of Babylon, but in every way, shape, and form. If it were left up to the king, he was trying to make them Babylonian in mind, body, and spirit. Daniel specifies for us that this intense period of assimilation before they would be allowed to serve in the court of the king would last for three years. And it is during this time that the remainder of our story in chapter 1 takes place. And so we looked at this idea last week that most people, when confronted with assimilation from a strange or toxic culture, would respond either by being fully assimilated or revolting against it. And we looked at how these folks did not choose either. They allowed themselves to embrace the culture in almost every way because these ways did not change what was most important about them, their internal allegiance to Yahweh. And then, when the time came for them to push back, they were, and we'll see further later, they were surgical in what they chose to revolt on. So let's read how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah respond and see what contemporary application we can glean from them. Let's go ahead and read over the next section from our text today, the first half of it, Daniel 1, 8 through 16. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age so you would endanger my head with the king then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah so this is the next guy down he's the one closest to them he's not the chief steward but the next steward Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Just as the king was determined to assimilate the Hebrews, what we see here is the exile's determination to rely upon the Lord for wisdom. The exile's determination to rely upon the Lord for wisdom. Now you might immediately say to me, Hans, what does this have to do with wisdom? This is talking about their diet. Well, let's break some things down in order to understand if this is really about their diet or if there's something else going on here, and we've superimposed that onto the text as the primary issue. Interestingly, this is an extremely confusing section, and there is much debate on what is actually meant by Daniel saying that he was not going to defile himself. It doesn't necessarily mix with what's going on. Let me walk you through the possible explanations that have been given over time and then show you why, in my estimation, none of them seem to give us a final answer, and I think that that is purposeful. The first possibility is that it would defile Daniel and his friends because it was food that had been offered to false gods in worship at the local temple. But this doesn't make sense because we know from studying the Babylonian culture that vegetables likewise would have been offered to the gods. Further, in Daniel 10.3, a passage that we will obviously study in a few months, uh, it's a, a passage that often popularly uses, uh, is used to refer to similar dietary choices as the Daniel fast. And what it actually presents grammatically in its context is that Daniel actually did, as an adult, once he was past these three years, eat of the king's table. He ate meat, he ate wine. It says in Daniel 10.2-3, in those days Daniel was mourning for three weeks. I ate no, uh, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And so it basically indicates that Daniel did, in in times of being an adult, eat those things, and that's why he was able to fast. And so that isn't a piece that we can say, well, that makes uh, sense and explains why he refused. There's an argument also that, this was just Daniel obediently following Levitical law and the associated kosher dietary laws. But this too cannot be 100% applied because wine was never banned as a kosher item. And some meat, like lamb, the Passover lamb, was totally approved in these laws. And kosher was not strictly vegetarian. A third is that it's been suggested that this is a response of mourning, like in Daniel 10:2 through three, And these foods that he avoided were festival foods or celebratory foods, and he didn't eat them because he was in mourning. So he was operating in a kind of penitence. But this doesn't fit the description of the food defiling him or polluting him. A fourth explanation is that the four Hebrews were operating in an ascetic practice, kind of like monks of self-denial, to focus on Yahweh so that they were not assimilated. And this has a little bit of merit, but again, it does not satisfy the idea of why the foods would cause defilement in and of themselves. And then fifth, some suggest that this was their way of revolting against Nebuchadnezzar's political authority. I've even heard this recently. But this wouldn't make sense, given the fact that as soon as the three years were up, guess where they were all employed? By the king in his court, doing his will and bidding. And so likewise, this doesn't describe why the food defiled them. And so it's left ambiguous, and I believe that's for a reason. Now, some of you might say, see, it was to show the wisdom of God, and that God gave them special knowledge about vegetarianism before there was such a thing, and we now know it's healthy. And so this was God giving them truth before science proved it. But again, this is a misreading of the story, enforcing our presupposition from a health-obsessed culture onto the passage. Contemporary attempts to use this passage to promote a so-called Daniel plan or Daniel diet tout the benefits of a vegetarian diet because a vegetarian diet will result in more energy, less cholesterol, a leaner body, and it will even suggest that this diet is the means by which God gave Daniel cognitive clarity and even wisdom. And that's where we start to go, wait a minute, hold on a second. Because this passage quickly shows us that that view of health, getting leaner, for example, was not at all what the author was trying to promote. How do we know this? Look again at 115. What does it say there? Notice that it says, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance. That could be, right? That could be part of the the Daniel diet. But then it says, and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Notice that it says that at the end of the 10 days, the youth were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Now, other translations, such as the NIV, misapply the Hebrew wording here and render it, looked healthier and better nourished. This is Daniel 1.15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now, this is not a bad translation, but I think it misses the point. Because this has added to the misuse of the passage. The actual Hebrew behind the phrase is a word that is rendered in four places, for example, in Genesis, as plump. It's used to describe Eglon in the book of Judges as fat. And we know this to be true because when the hero of that story, Ehud, plunges his dagger into Eglon's abdomen, fat literally encompasses his arm. That's fat, right? Now, this is why in the New King James and the ESV, it is rendered fatter in the flesh. And in the NASB, it takes all of the uh, uh, discussion out when it says at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, this is very politically incorrect, is it not, (laughs) right? (laughs) Some of you are probably like, oh, why are we talking so much about this? Well, the reason that this is important is because With archaeological evidence of Babylonian and Mesopotamian reliefs, archaeologists have found that in the culture of that day, those who were seen as sorcerers, magicians, wise men, and intellectual astrologers were all fat. This was a sign of divine blessing in a culture where peasants most likely did not eat well. Kings were to be muscular and strong so they could be seen as warriors, but wise men only needed their intellect, not brawn, and so they were to be fat. For Daniel and his friends to not become fat would have meant, at minimum, denial of admittance into the courts of the king, and at worst, death. Why? Because they would have been looked at as, well, you guys obviously aren't close to the gods because you're unhealthy, you're not fat, so you're not wise, you're not going to be wise men. They would have been booted out. So linguistically, grammatically, historically, and contextually, the author's point is simply this. By choosing what we now know to be a calorically restricted diet, Daniel was giving room to show that Yahweh was still his God and could do whatever he wanted. Only by Yahweh's miraculous hand could Daniel and his three companions become fatter in 10 days by eating only vegetables and water. What would have been expected was for the boys to be gaunt and skinnier than the other youths. And this is even proven in the reaction of the servant. Hey, guys, I'm not sure about your request here. You're going to get me killed because the king expects you to be fatter at the end of the three years. Now, guys, do you see why I get frustrated as a Bible teacher when I hear about Christians getting sucked into things like the Daniel plan and the Daniel diet? When we take the Bible out of context and use it in a way that it wasn't intended, it does not serve well as a witness for the Bible's reliability. Worse yet, it diverts our eyes and hearts off of the intended focus, which is the miraculous sovereignty and providence of Yahweh in the lives of His people living in a toxic culture. So again, if you've gotten great health out of vegetarian diets and even maybe the book The Daniel Plan... I am not reckon that at all. I praise God that you've gotten health of that. But please don't propagate this idea that that's what's being said in this text. Now it could have been that the four teenagers were taking a broad swipe at Levitical kosher diet, or that they didn't want to engage in eating meat sacrificed to idols. This is true. They could have done these things, but it doesn't fully answer why they did these things. Any of these could have led to the idea of not being defiled. But more to the point of the passage is the fact that Daniel wanted to show that they were turning to Yahweh for wisdom and favor, not to the king's training regimen. And notice as well that this was not a big production. They did not do this for the king. In fact, it's implied that Nebuchadnezzar never found out. He didn't even know about it. And you could even say that they did not really do it for the lead servant, Because he seems to push back, and even though they gain favor with him, he seems to push back, and so they politely go away from him and go to the underservant, the steward assigned to them, and says, and he says, hey, they said, hey, would you you mind if we, we try this for a bit? It's as if they're telling him, you know, let the proof be in the pudding. I mean, vegetables, right? And so if anyone was impacted by their polite revolt, it was the steward, They were simply showing an example to the person already in their sphere of influence. But more importantly, I would suggest that they were doing it for the Lord and for themselves, even within their tiny little community of four people. They were encouraging one another within this toxic culture to stay true to Yahweh at the core of their being. There is no indication that this is an act of someone who is truly holy. It is simply the chosen action on which point the Hebrews felt like they had a choice, felt like they could do something, and decided to trust the Lord together for provision and favor in the court of the king. And boy, did he deliver. Let's read our last portion from Daniel in Daniel 1, 17 through 21 and see what it says there. It says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. In other words, all the rest of the guys that went through the king's training regimen. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And that's a statement that he lasted the entirety of the rest of the kingdom of Babylon, basically saying he outlasted, he was stronger, he was better. And here what we see is actually something not about Daniel at all. What we see in this section is this, the Lord's faithfulness to provide wisdom to the exiles. The Lord's faithfulness to provide wisdom to the exiles. Just as it was miraculous in the embodied physical plane that God was given room to move and provided physical fullness or fatness, they also relied upon God for his wisdom as well, and God delivered. It is heartbreaking for me to see people read this section and interpret it as a hero myth that Daniel was given this superpower because of his self-discipline or ascetic lifestyle or for people to use this as backing to their political revolt. This section is meant to proclaim one main theme. The Lord provides for his people in exile. He provides a gracious wisdom so that we are not fully acclimated and sucked into the foolishness and worldliness with which we are surrounded. Now, beloved, do you see why I get frustrated when somebody comes along and says, Hey, pay attention to the diet? It's not purposefully evil. It's that in pointing to the wrong thing, we miss the glory of the actual message of this passage, a message that is far more needed for God's people in exile. And if you don't believe me that this is the main point, just look at the repetition of the phrase, God gave, in verses 2, 9, and 17. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. It's all about God's sovereignty and the fact that he would not abandon his people even when they're in exile as a result of the sins of their forefathers. Look again with me at the earlier reading we had that Dave did a great job on from Proverbs 3. Would you go there in your Bibles with me? Proverbs 3. Let's talk about this idea of wisdom that God gave them. Let's read from Proverbs 3.13. Give me an amen if you're there. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Pause there for a second. I didn't have time to go into this in detail, but just really quick, as a side note, think about this. Think about the theme of the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When presented with the option to go with God's tree, the tree of life in which he was the source of life and all wisdom versus the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did Adam and Eve choose? Did they go with God's choice or the worldly wisdom? The worldly wisdom. When given that same choice of going with the worldly wisdom, the king's uh, program of wisdom, or the knowledge of the tree of life, going with Yahweh and trusting him, which one did Daniel and his friends choose? The tree of life. I want to ask you, which one will you choose? Daily, you are given the chance and the choice to choose the wisdom from the tree of life, the word of God and his truth, or you're given the choice to choose from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the worldly way of doing things. Worldly knowledge. Which do you choose? Let's keep going. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and an adornment for your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Does anybody need that right now, the way that the world's going? Do not be afraid of sudden terror. I'm pausing intentionally here. When you see something on the news that strikes terror or makes you afraid or angry, the Lord says, do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Notice these last three verses. This is the idea that Daniel 1 is providing. They relied upon the wisdom of the Lord, the wisdom he gave them. And look back for context at, at verses 5 through 8 there in chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the idea of Daniel 1. Even in exile, when we think we are overwhelmed with the darkness of the world, when the world is trying to suck us in and assimilate us into the way it thinks and works, when we are afraid of sudden terror and when we are acting in that fear, if we trust in the Lord alone without our heart and lean on his understanding and not our own, or of any other worldly voice, including social media, including Fox News, including CNN News, including talk radio hosts, then we will see the Lord, Yahweh, is our confidence and will keep our foot from being caught. The imagery there is like a game animal getting their foot caught in the trap of the hunter that wants to kill them and devour them. For us, this is our adversary who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants us to be assimilated so heavily into the thinking of the world, into the thinking of one political party or another. And so he fills our minds and hearts and the world around us with conspiracy and lies that divide. And friends, if you think I'm talking about one party or another or one candidate or another, you do not know me at all. It comes from everywhere. And if we allow this to take us, we will get caught in the enemy's net. And not only will we be caught, but we will be immobilized from being the witness to God's glory in the midst of exile that we were intended to be. For you see, friends, unlike the errant theology of Seventh-day Adventists that say that it is our diet that sets us apart and makes us a peculiar people, it is actually our lives following God's wisdom that sets us apart. How do we know this? Look back with me at a passage uh, there up on the screen from Deuteronomy 4 that we studied a ton when we were in that book. It says this, see I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? It's from Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. As we studied when we were in Deuteronomy, the commands given to the Jewish people were not in and of themselves wisdom, But they were the embodied example. By acting them out, they were the embodied example of God's wisdom and character of holiness, righteousness, and justice played out before the nations. And so for us, as New Covenant believers, we do not look to the law as the full embodiment of God's character. We look to Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law and then died in our place to pay the price for our sins against the law. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1. And what we will see in the New Testament is the truth that speaks to this Old Testament story that we have just seen in Daniel. And what we're gonna see here is the confirmation of the truths we've seen in Daniel. And you can write this down. In a toxic culture, relying upon the Lord's wisdom, the gospel of Christ, will set us apart. In a toxic culture, relying upon the Lord's wisdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will set us apart. In Babylon, one was made wise by attending this Chaldean training program. One was made wise and given the grace of the gods by being fattened up by the king's delicacies that had been previously sacrificed to the false gods of Babylon. They thought it was the Chaldeans that were close to the gods. That's why they had wisdom, supposedly. And the Hebrews were just a conquered people. They were foolish. Uh, They they were weak. They got conquered, especially these four teenage boys. After all, they would have thought to themselves, these Hebrews are foolish enough to trust in a God that just allowed them to be conquered and taken away into exile. All of the Babylonians would have looked at these four young boys and thought they're foolish. This is not too dissimilar to today where the world says to us, hey, Jesus isn't really the answer. If Jesus and your Bible were real, then why hasn't all this been fixed? Why hasn't Jesus returned? And people scoff at the word. And so well-meaning Christians get their foot caught in the net and get sucked into this view or that view. The world's view of wisdom that this one cause or this one candidate or this one issue or this one societal change or this one party will finally be the solution. But friends, look at what was going on here in 1 Corinthians. They were buying into worldly wisdom. Division had entered their church. And see how Paul responds. Let's take a look there at 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 31. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, except when it comes to politics. Right you guys see that That, that little caveat. Is that in your Bible? Anybody? No. no, it's not there. There is no caveat. That's my point. Sorry for the sarcasm. Not sorry. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat. I know that I just added to the Word of God there, by the way. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Let me pause there for a second. Here's how we put it in contemporary terms. Were you saved by being a Republican? Were you saved by being a Democrat? The answer is? Thank you. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, you can just imagine God knowing that years later from Daniel, he would give Paul this word, and he's looking at those four Hebrew boys going, yep, I'm using the weak to shame the strong. I'm using the foolish Hebrew teenage boys to shame the wise men of the Babylonians. Because you see, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, there are people erecting crosses on both sides of the political aisle, You see in the news that this protester over here from this leftist group is erecting the cross and saying that true Christians will vote this way and do this thing. And then over on the other side of the aisle, you see people putting up a cross and saying, true Christians will vote this way and do this thing. Friends, if you are a true Christian, you will have nothing to do with either of those groups. Period. Period. You will stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, not a political platform, period. Is that direct enough? Here we see these Christians that were strangers in a strange land. They were Corinthians that had stepped out of this amazingly pagan and idolatrous and debauched culture of Corinth, and yet they were getting sucked back into the division. Does this sound familiar? We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus for one purpose, the witness of Jesus Christ. And yet, I'm watching many of you that I love, that I have passion for, that I serve, getting sucked back into the wisdom of the world. And then I get arguments of, well, no, their point is right. Christ would fight for their point. No, Christ would fight for their point. No, he wouldn't. Because he's focused on his message, not this group or that group. How did this happen? How did they start acting in the wisdom of the world when they'd been purchased by the blood of Jesus? And what is the answer? Paul gives it to us. Go back to the gospel. Daniel and his companions' actions could have been described as them saying in Daniel chapter one, we're not gonna follow the same course of seeking the wisdom you all are because we don't want to empty Yahweh's wisdom of its power Instead, we will give glory to him. And this, brothers and sisters, this sets the stage for every vision, every courtroom scene in the book of Daniel in which Yahweh is given the glory and the majesty. The book of Daniel, friends, is not about Daniel. And it's not about eschatology, even. That's not the primary concern. It's definitely part of it, but it's not the primary. The book of Daniel is about Yahweh's loyalty and trustworthiness to sustain his people in exile. And this is the message we need to hear, brothers and sisters. Even in the midst of this screwed up culture and country where many seem to have lost their mind in some way or another, God is still faithful. Amen? God is still trustworthy. Amen? God has provided wisdom to guide us. We simply have to lean not on our own understanding or the understanding of others in the world, but on the wisdom of Yahweh that was made incarnate in the person, work, sacrificial death, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. And where that begins is if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you're sitting here today or you're watching online and you have never given your life over to Christ as Lord, Savior, and King, today is the day to do so. I would love to talk with you after service about what it is to walk with Jesus and discard the wisdom of the world and focus on Christ. Come chat with me or one of our other elders. If you're online, I'd love to talk with you. It's hans at missionsalem.com. Email me. I'd love to chat with you about being a disciple. But what is our application from the text today? Is it that we should change our diet? Is that the application of the text today? No, it's not. Again, if you've been blessed by a diet change, awesome, praise God for it. That's not what our text is about. Our application is simply this, especially in exile, where we are tempted to look at the culture around us for wisdom and answers, we should instead trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight our paths. And, friends, if we truly do this, if we keep our eyes focused on the faithfulness of Yahweh that was so perfectly expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will fulfill our purpose of witnessing in the midst of a toxic culture and we will rise above the fray. Friends, when the topic of politics or civil strife or sexual ethics or anything else comes up, I want to ask you where do you look for truth? Do you flip on AM radio to hear what the pundits are saying? Do you turn on Fox News or CNN to let them tell you how to think? Do you go through Instagram and your pre-chosen people that you follow because they're the ones that give truth? Or do you look to Christ? When trying to figure out how to change the world for the better and cast evil out, where do you look for the avenues to do so? The world's opinion? where the Bible's call to be a peculiar people that show the wisdom of God in the way that we love people and call them to truth through the gospel. As we looked at the last two weeks, and we'll refer to it a lot more as we go through Daniel, Peter calls us exiles. He does so in verse 11 there of 1 Peter 2. He calls us exiles and sojourners. But in the context of that, he also calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And as Christ followers in exile in this toxic culture, we want those around us to proclaim when they see how we act, how we speak. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God to us whenever we call upon him? That's what we want the world to say about us, amen? When we speak, when we act, when we live, when we love, we want the world to say that about us. And we can only accomplish this if we look to Christ and His Word. Friends, if you have been perplexed by all that is going on around you, I want to ask you, where do you find you are spending the majority of your time looking for answers? Is it in surfing websites and social media, or is it on your knees in prayer and pouring through the Word of God? Just as Daniel and his three friends purposed to trust in Yahweh for wisdom rather than the typical Babylonian view you and I need to turn to God's word and the model of Christ for wisdom. And if we do so, we will draw others around us to Christ because they will find the truth that we proclaim, like Daniel and his friends were found, better than all the worldly wisdom that is in the kingdom of darkness. And friends, if you hear in my voice a passion, even in a frustration bordering on anger, it is because of this. I love you and this church and Jesus Christ so much that I do not want his name marred because of our political opinions. Let the witness of this church and each of you as members of this body be a witness that gives Jesus the glory, not any political view. Amen? Amen. I pray that you can hear my heart in this and my desire for us to preach to Jesus' goodness.